What's up, everybody? Welcome to the podcast. Let's start. I've only read 5% of it because it just came out. Elon Musk I just by bought Walter it. Isaacson. Yeah. Nice. So I listened to him a bit on Lex Friedman. I'll tell you, I eventually would like to do a full book review, but there were pieces that I found interesting just in the first 5% because it is a long book. Starts with his childhood and how kind of brutal it was. He was sent to a military camp as a young kid where both him and his brother and even the dad sort of confirmed that they just beat the hell out of these kids. They like they physically beat them. They encouraged them to beat each other. And it was a violent thing in South Africa that was not terribly uncommon. Additionally, he was autistic in growing up. And I think at one point he called the kids stupid, which he said often, apparently. That was the insult that Elon liked to have. And he was beaten so badly that his brother, Kimball, said that you could, couldn't even make out his face. His eyes were swelled shut. He had to go to the hospital. He was having reconstructive surgery for this into his adulthood. So he spent a week in the hospital after he got beat, beat up yeah. this badly. He came home and his dad berated him for being weak and for getting beat up. And because he should have known not to call that kid stupid because that kid's dad had just committed suicide. And that was in the first hour after he got home from a week in the hospital to give you an idea of what his dad was like. Yeah. In, in some ways. They also had just one line in there, Walter writes, where uh, the mom's strategy with Elon was, at least when he was a young baby, to just let him cry. And it got so bad that the neighbors had to call the cops. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's just like, okay. And... So you're, you get an idea of it. Now, the Emerald Mind thing is there. His dad had a good fortune and bad fortune, and it was a boom-bust sort of thing with his dad. But you don't get the impression, at least from the first 5%, that he had a privileged childhood. You get the impression that physical violence was very present in his life. And emotional turmoil. And emotional turmoil. And inability to connect with people yep. in a way that was effortless or easy or even just comfortable. And it gives you, they, he then connects it to the type of guy that he is today, which is extremely mercurial. He talks about how he can be joking and playful one second and then just destroy someone in the next and go right back to joking and playful, the ease with which he switches. They talk about how he goes dark. Yeah. He says, which is interesting if you've seen him, that when he's thinking he loses sensory input. So if you've ever seen him just, drift off in conversation apparently friends would like wave hands in front of his eyes when he was thinking and they there was a game oh, wow. that he couldn't be gotten through to when he was in his head that makes a lot of sense he has a strong ability to dissociate in like an incredible dissociative capacity and he cites an interview from 2017 how he struggles to fall asleep and he would have when things were going bad with SpaceX and they had three rockets blow up, he would have night terrors from his childhood. Of <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it just paints the picture, I think fairly deliberately, of a guy who is traumatized and is seeking risk for risk's sake, an incredible amount of drama, and huge stressful experiences because that's what his system is conditioned for. Yeah, yep. And he stresses about humanity and consciousness. To me, this is my own interpretation. To avoid <laughs> the the ever-present stress of existing in his own body. Yep. Which is a deeply threatening 
And its place. favorite book is uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah. Which is extremely exploratory and, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and so they talk to his his wives. He's got this very child. You've seen him. He's he's childlike. He is silly and goofy, but he's also really dra- dramatic and looks for trouble and, and prone to lashing out on prone to lashing out Twitter and will make short sighted decisions, but is also ha- has adult capacities that have enabled him to do as much as he has. So it's very interesting picture. Now, there was a piece early on that made me question the entirety of what was said. And I'll be, he said that he played Elden Ring all night one night. And the way that, let's see if I can find it. He describes Elden Ring as a war and empire building game. And so this was, this was... Cons- well, explain what Elden Ring is and explain Not what- a war and empire building game, which was concerning to me because the image of Elon staying up all night to play an empire building game is like if he was playing civilization or something is that he's just trying to amass all of this wealth and beat the small guys that that's sort of what is communicated in that little anecdote. What Elden Ring actually is, it's a atmospheric, uh, souls like game that is incredibly challenging. You're your third person behind your character the whole time. It well, is not an empire building game. It might be a power fantasy game. Let me see if I can also say, cause I didn't really play Elden Ring, but it also is, uh, as a player's journey, if you're playing this game, it's incredibly tormenting and you never win <laughs> yeah. and you get beat up the entire yeah, time. You die a lot. So is that, is that, so his version of empire building is the first person just gets destroyed over and over again. The first person well, so character. Elon doesn't call it that. Walter Isaacson is the one who calls it that. Okay. And it, it just made me doubt his research. I'll be honest. It made, oh, me, oh, oh. it made me concerned about his ability to research. It's an extremely popular game. No one who has played it would call it a war and empire building game. Got it. And the fact that he wrote that made me wonder, did the cops really come? Did they really call the cops? Is that an exaggeration? And because so much of it is in, this is why I have an issue with biographies. I I much prefer either either self-help nonfiction because you can test that in your own life or fiction because it doesn't matter if that's true or not. But when you're talking about a biography, it, it makes it claim on truth that you can't verify. Right. You have to extend trust. And I normally don't read biographies for that reason. I was feeling more comfortable about this one because he spent so much time with Elon and it was a first person account. And then I'll be honest, that threw me for a loop to go. This is a big that's a that's a meaningful miss that makes me wonder how many of these that I can't check that you are using to create this picture of a guy that may or may not be reflective of who he is, because I am reading it with the intent to understand not just him, but people and w- the cost of success at that level. And so that that threw me. So I'm only 5% in. I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I wanted to... One of the things I found interesting with the book uh, or the talk on Lex Friedman was that he was talking about um, Elon's mind and his ability and connection with physics plus material science is that of a genius where he can walk onto a Tesla model line and point to one of the engineers and say, why is there four six bolts on the store rather than four? We don't need six bolts. And the engineer will say, we'd have to run a lot of tests for that to be the case. This is, we've already tested it. This is how it works. And he goes, no, the way the force works would come down this direction and then this direction and those two bolts are just unnecessary. They're not doing anything. And then they run all the tests and it turns out to be the case where he can make these sweeping judgments about physics and material science really quickly. And he can look at the Falcon engine and say, what's this heat ray, uh, heat panel doing here? It's totally unnecessary. And then they can do all the tests and it turns out it's totally unnecessary, um, which is like, He's really decisive. 
he's willing to cut. And even if it's um, going to slow things down it's and it's better for the future, he's a really long-term thinker. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what uh, I found interesting. He talked about um, long-term uh, meetings they have where they're talking about what's the government on Mars. Yeah. But uh, I won't give too much away the book or that talk if you wanted to, to read it yourself. Yeah. The the one thing I took from the Lex Friedman was they're talking about, what it was it? Oh, it was the firings at Twitter. And the question that everybody asks is, did Elon fire too many people? Did it cause chaos? And what Walter Isaacson says is that the way that Elon does elimination is that he purposely tries to eliminate so many bolts or so many people such that he breaks the thing. Oh, and then the yeah. goal is to then add 20% back. And so when asked, did Elon overcut? He said, well, not for Elon. He didn't. Because the goal was to create problems where people's fobs wouldn't work and they couldn't get into the building or the service degraded a bit so that they could now hire back an additional 20% of people. And I thought that was, I was at the All In Summit. There is the tendency of large organizations to just get bloat. And he is apparently very ruthless in his elimination of that. The CEO of Shopify had a similar thing that he commented on at this All In podcast where he talks about how he will have periodic deletions of everybody's pre-scheduled meetings. So every meeting on everybody's calendar just gets dropped. And if you want to do that meeting, you have to re-sign up for it. They talk about how they delete Slack channels. And I don't know if they do it randomly, but they go in with the recognition that clutter accrues in these kind of organizations. Mm. Bloat exists. And if you don't cut sometimes to the point of pain, then you're not cutting enough. And I thought that this was really interesting because people often try to miss in the opposite direction of these wildly successful peoples. They always try to cut without making any pain. Mm-hmm. And they go, oh, so how many people can we cut with nothing going wrong? And they get their answer. It's one or two or three people. And it's like, well, how many people can we cut if we're willing to have a medium amount of things go wrong. And yeah. the answer is way more, way more. And then add back that gap. That does seem to be an interesting way that people who operate at the top do high leverage. Yeah. It's just a different, they're willing to miss in a different direction than the average person. Because the average person, this is what I also realized, is not playing to win. They're playing not, they're playing to cover their own ass. Playing not to lose. They're playing not to lose. So if they're, if they're in charge of cuts, the last thing they want is the heat that Elon took for all of the cuts at X. And by the way, I have no idea if this will ultimately be good or bad for Twitter. I I don't know. I'm just interested in his thought process. Your average person would rather bleed the company over a long period of time, collect their, the pay that they have for doing their job and not put their own name on the chopping block for causing these issues like Elon did. And that is why you get people that ask, how do I not lose? Mm -hmm. How many people can I cut without creating an issue? When you're playing to win, like a founder is, like the CEO of Shopify is, like an Elon is, like these people that have huge appetites for risk and also very are very likely to succeed, playing to win looks very different. And you're willing to have your name drug to look like an idiot to have people look down on you for because you're you're just playing a longer term game. And I thought that that was not something that I'm it's something that I'm going to consider more. I'm sure that there's a countervailing force that needs to be accounted for, that needs to be accounted for because I'm not interested in being like Elon or having the success that Elon has, quite frankly. Yep. But there's there is something to that 
are you avoiding every single problem? This is a Tim Ferriss question. Or are you willing to take steps that create issues to find out where the actual point of efficiency is that makes everything go easier from that point after? So I thought that that was an interesting thing with Elon. And then the last thing of that, Walter Isaacson, he has these other biographies with Ben Franklin. I just bought the Leonardo da Vinci one and then a few others. And the thread of like these geniuses with really troubled childhoods is always fascinating to see how um, they come out of it and then have these macro scale problems they want to solve. Um, so I'm looking forward to reading and figuring out mm -hmm. <laughs> what was going on with these guys. So Johnny Harris made a, well, I think his best video, which was on the... I think the Downing Street memo, which is a memo. Downing Street is 10 Downing Street is where the prime minister of uh, Great Britain. Is it is it England or Great Britain? Somebody over there will know. Okay. <laughs> I think it's of England because the Great Britain is perhaps larger, but correct me if I'm wrong. It was a memo taken when uh, somebody went over to talk to, I believe, the director of the CIA from the United States about George Bush's plans prior to Iraq. And it's just it's just in the open that, they're gearing up for a war. They're about to run a propaganda campaign. They want this to happen, and this is their timeline for making it happen. And then he goes through what George Bush and his cohort knew about the war, what he was being told, and how they spun it, not just to the American public, but to Congress in order to make this war happen. And he doesn't even speculate as to why. He doesn't talk about Halliburton or Dick Cheney or if he was pissed off about his dad. This is the war on terror. This the war is the Mass invasion into Iraq that killed 500,000 Iraqi people. And that... To find weapons of mass destruction. To find weapons of mass destruction, which he knew, knew were not there. And which he was told repeatedly were not there. And to watch him lie... Over and over, and Colin Powell going and lie, and I'm sure that there's some level at which you lie to yourself. Uh, so it's did he know or didn't he? Mm. But what I found really incredible was it. It I lived through it, and I remembered at the time what people were saying and thinking, and it it even at the time people were like, "This is bullshit." <laughs> yeah, I remember Hans Blix on 60 Minutes, who was the C, is the UN weapons inspector, saying we were just there for months. They don't have it. And we went in anyway and just screwed everything up and ruined lives. And it's a great video. I recommend watching it. The thing that shocks me is the rehabilitation of George Bush's image as a result of this, that people think that Donald Trump is the worst president of the last five is crazy. I mean, it, it's, it seems like it's not even a contest mm. given 500,000 dead Iraqis trillion dollars or more lost on this actually i don't know if that i think it was two trillion between iraq and afghanistan i'm not sure how much can be allocated directly to iraq but on something that he had every reason to know was not the degradation of lives and economics to the u.s it's, it's incredible and i he is absolutely the worst president of the last several and you know, Ellen, who will complain about whatever's hanging out with him at ball games, And I'm not saying that he needs to be a pariah, but I don't understand how, perhaps it was because social media wasn't a thing, how he bounced back so quickly to not be reviled uh, as a result of his things. And I, I guess if I had to wager a guess, it would be because he seems naive, folksy, out of his depth and therefore 
not responsible for for also bringing him up in the top of a conversation is people then want to compare him to the other presidents and then anyone who's doing this says that you have a invested interest in saying one is better than the other rather than just objectively looking at the president so these arguments often come up when like you have someone who really backs donald trump or they really like joe biden biden and -hmm. then you say but what about george bush and then you know it just complicates looking individually at that presidency you know what i mean I understand like the way I, this conversation always it. comes off. Like, like when you're like, I don't understand it. It's like this conversation only, only for when I hear it, it comes up in regards to is Joe Biden doing good? Did Donald Trump do good? Should Donald Trump run? Should he go to jail? And then I always hear, well, George Bush did this. You, you know hear I mean? that you hear that from me. And what I, I say it when I'm trying to give context, when people say something like, well, Joe Biden is the worst president we've ever had, or Donald Trump is the worst. It, it, there's nobody that's, that's been worse than him yeah. for the U S presidency. And I'm, there's somebody in your lifetime that was worth. And I think I, I try to use it to bring context to how bad things are today compared to that. I don't think that we've touched that yet in any of the recent presidents. Mm. Uh, I don't think we're close to, to that amount of destruction and damage and loss of life. And, and we're still dealing with the post as just everyday life when no one cares about, which is the, uh, a Patriot Act, if it's just like spying on Americans, it's just an everyday <laughs> thing. Johnny Harris has another thing where he talks about the Patriot Act, and it's just horrifying to like the lies that were told, the data storage, and like they knew where the world was going. Everyone was going to have a phone, and they're going to be able to track everything, and no one cares. Mm-hmm. Um, but they cared at the time, yeah, and they lied about it. Well, Edward and Snowden now enough time is that has passed that it's like, oh well, too late. Yeah, ever so thought he would, he could tell people, and they'd care. Yes, <laughs> they did. Yeah, they didn't. Dude is just. Yeah, whatever. And yeah. he's got all our data. Yeah. So uh, just a handful, I'll, I'll hop through another of things. I learned this week, I have a coach and I was talking to him about thinking about another leg of my career and my issue with so much of internet marketing and how it has got a distasteful feel to it. And I've tried to do things within the industry that are that don't make me feel that way. Mm. And he said, well, do you know the origins of internet marketing? I said, no, I don't. And he said, well, it comes from this guy whose name is escaping me right now. But if you could look back at the people who taught you and the people who taught them, and he goes back three or four people who taught, people who taught, it's a guy who ran real estate seminars, meaning get together, we're going to teach you to flip houses and make money. And he was ruthless in A-B testing, apparently would, you know, jacket over left shoulder, jacket over right shoulder, what color shirts that he wore. And of course, one of the things that he found that Dan Locke did and CoffeeZilla talked about in his videos was... Should I tell people to run to the tables and sign up for the course or to walk to the table and sign up? And so they would encourage table runs and get people in this elevated state where they would run to the table and sign up to join the course. This is right at a now. physical real estate at a physical event real estate event. Try online. Yes. Got it. And so he was telling me about this and he said the reason that internet marketing feels scammy is because all of the origins that the false timer that ticks down on high the pressure page. sales situation high pressure get sales people in a room really easy to get a refund haha just kidding no it's not it's an action-based refund that you'll never get all of the stuff that is often included in how people talk about internet marketing comes from people and a guy who is selling a product that doesn't work which is you're not going to get rich this guy's seminar so he needs to find a way to get you to buy and collect your money without delivering value to you and he said, while there are some things that come of that, you can, you can have a better headline or a better whatever. There's some things that you can learn. 
if you look at the companies that have a product that people want, they market very differently. Mm. If you look at Tesla, if you look at Apple, if you look at people, the things that people actually want to buy, they, you don't have to run and buy your Apple. Actually, you technically do because they can't make enough when they drop a new product yeah. <laughs> for you to get them in time or Sony PlayStation 5. Those aren't artificial scarcity. That's a real scarcity because they can't get enough of the the chips that they need in order to get these phones it's going. It's Tesla that uh, notoriously has never run ads or something. Tesla doesn't have ads. The, the, all of, or some company. I'm not sure if it's Tesla. So I that that was, one, it was heartening to me to go, oh, there's a different way to do it. And I think that I've skirted this side in the past and would like to lean even heavier into it in the future, which is all of the things that you're going to hear from a lot of the people who may or may not have products that work, I don't know, but if they're teaching the lineage of internet marketing, yes, they're te teaching techniques that work, but they are techniques that were grown from people that couldn't rely on the quality of their product. Yep. And then one of the lies that internet marketers tell themselves psychologically to go through with it, and salesmen, I see it all the time, is that you have an ethical obligation to do everything that you can to get this person to buy. And I find that almost anyone who says that is deluding themselves because I, I don't see those people feeling an ethical obligation to make anyone buy the other best products that they don't own that have impacted their life. <laughs> it's only an ethical obligation to sell their own product that they have. And so I find it very unconvincing. And in fact, I find it that it enable, enables all manner of BS uh, because it is in service of the ultimate greatest good. So there's there's all this stuff that, that goes on in the marketing world and it's got shady foundations and it just made sense. It was like, oh, why? This is, this is why so much of it is so icky because it's about selling products that don't work. And I think uh, if you're someone who, like CoffeeZilla, who we chatted to, God, we lost the fucking podcast. It would have been a great one to have had years ago. Um, that just goes, of course, businesses suck or things. If it's you're selling on the internet, it's it's bad. And I know that CoffeeZilla, I think, thinks that any course business costs over a certain amount of money. I don't know if he still thinks this, but he did at the time, is a scam. Mm -hmm. uh, it's un it's understandable why people think that because so much of the industry is about selling stuff that sucks. It's marketing first rather than product and Correct. impact and result first. But if you go product, impact, result first... And then you charge a price that is 600, 700, 2,000, 10,000, whatever that, and you're optimizing not for conversions of sale, but for say you're optimizing instead for satisfied customers. Yeah. You can sell stuff that's great and ethical and amazing, but there's not a lot of that going on. And it's not that there's not a lot of going on. That's not being taught because that's so much. Alex Hormozzi, I think is one of the people that points at this. Yeah. That it is just easier to do all of the table run A-B testing nonsense when you're a 22-year-old to get people to sign up for your drop shipping business yeah. than it is to spend the years creating a product that creates meaningful change in people's life that wasn't available before you figured it out. Yep. And, and this is why once he layered on marketing techniques on top of his really, mm -hmm. really good stuff, he's blown up. Yeah. And Hormozy like, exploded, which yeah. is... In a year. Not because he's not because he marketed his YouTube channel well, because the the content of his first book, Hundred Million Dollars Offer, was very, very good. Yep. And then he can package it in all these different ways and uh add some of the things that you might get from that. And in fact, I would say, I don't know with him, but he generally people probably go further than they need to into the split testing and the table run stuff in order to to get stuff to happen. 
you know, his first book is was just a two ninety nine on Kindle and it's gonna be a bestseller for years. Yep. <laughs> because he put a lot of fucking time into it. There's also it creates space for the P ninety X companies to come up and uh-huh. be like, yours is gonna be the hardest thing you've ever done mm-hmm. and you're not gonna succeed. And uh I always enjoyed their marketing because it's like you're gonna lose a bunch of weight and you're gonna hate it mm-hmm. the entire time. <laughs> yep. Um Tony Horton, whatever his name is. Tony Horton. That and and then there is space for somebody who won't promise you, like you said. This is going to be effortless, and any people who haven't made any money can make $50,000. Like when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Imagine now, this is Alex Hormozzi, somebody selling a product that says, business is really hard. It's going to take you a lot of time to do it. If you follow these steps, you'll succeed. And it's going to be brutal. And most of you are going to want to quit. And that's the price of admission. Yep. <laughs> and it's like, oh, you can, you can actually sell that way. If it, and you can, have, you can be honest. And you can charge a ton of money for that course. He doesn't yep. need to, given his model. But he could make a how-to entrepreneurship course. That was, you're going to have to implement this over the next three years to get your first, whatever, million-dollar year or something yeah, like yeah. that. Uh, so I thought that that was interesting and instructive and also made me wonder, what if internet marketing wasn't born this way? What could it look like? What if it was, if Apple was the first company to have cracked internet marketing and everybody followed them, what sort of stuff might I be doing today? What sort of things would never occur to me that I can just throw out? Yeah, interesting. Uh, so- that's where my head has been, and I don't have any, too many concrete things, but I thought that it was interesting. And I'm going to do a hard pivot now to some breathwork stuff that I got that I thought was really valuable that nice. I'll try to share, which is related to people-pleasing. And I'll give context to this. I think that everybody has parts of their life where they're a people-pleaser. And... I wouldn't have identified as this because if you, I think, look at me and you're even a friend of mine or someone who's been very frustrated by my stubbornness, you'd be like, Charlie's not a people pleaser. Charlie does not please me very often. He is uh, insolent and willful and does his own thing and quit his job. And and when we're trying to order food, trying he's going to order his own food he's gonna, and not join the squad. He's not going to share. And he's going <laughs> to, so you go, oh, he doesn't carry that. And I can assure you that I do. The reason that I bring that up is because if you're out there going, not identifying with people pleasing, what I have found in myself is that there are areas in my life where it is incredibly powerful and they are invisible to me partially because there's so many areas where I don't feel. And I go, well, I said no there. I said no there. I definitely, you know, put my foot down there. But in finding the places where it is hidden, it is a real unlock to go, oh my God, there were all of these problems downstream that I was feeling, stresses that I was getting into, and it came from an inability to say no six months ago mm. or whatever. And I think that what I have found, it might be what other people found, is that people struggle to say no in those places where they do not understand their own ownership. So I'll give you a, uh, for how do I give a for instance? If for me, some of them have been in business around firing and saying no to projects and those sorts of things. And what I feel is that because someone has put in effort to a project, 
say that I'm the boss, which I am, and I'm looking at something and I go, this isn't good enough. It is hard for me to say no because I feel that their effort gives them ownership over whether or not we post the video on the channel. I have another example. Yeah. I went on a date recently mm -hmm. and the end goal was that the date for that person was enjoyable for them. Mm -hmm. And so my people pleasing nature came up strong and it was interesting to watch um, in terms of what I suggested we do was just whatever would make them happy. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you'll feel this too as a guy going on a date was just like, what do you want to eat? And it's like, I don't have a strong sense, but I'm cool with whatever. And I can veil it as like, I know what I want, but yeah, it, it, I felt the same urge that the end goal was uh, their enjoyment, which is like really codependent. Yeah. Well, that, I guess what I'm saying is, so you might be able to identify that. That's actually easier to identify than the one that I'm talking about. So okay. yes to that. And there are other areas where you, what you'll notice is difficulty or friction or not knowing how to handle this particular relationship because, well, they have this. And it can stem from a misunderstanding of ownership, meaning if there's somebody that I don't think is doing a good job on the team, but they've been putting in a lot of effort. What I was not feeling is my ownership over the quality of the product, who works at the company, who doesn't, because what I had was feeling energetically was that their effort purchased them ownership in they get to post this thing on the channel because they tried. Does that make sense? So it's somebody, a little I'll just give bit it, it's somebody, a little somebody bit says, hey, I want to make shorts for your channel. I say, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Give it a try. So how did it, you come up with people pleasing there? So, so you we, let them do it is the end goal. So I allowed them to say, yeah, yeah, make shorts. And, if they're, and then they make a short. And I don't think it's that good. But what happens is I feel guilty that they put in the effort and therefore lose track of my sense of ownership of the channel and go, well, they did this, so I can't really say. And so it doesn't even occur to me to say no. It says, well, I guess we'll post it and see how it does. And so I'm not even aware that I'm afraid to say no mm -hmm. because my, my ownership sense is skewed. And I did a breath work that was very helpful that I think eventually I would like to codify and include in a program or a product that I, that I could increasingly make around boundaries and the value that they have and how oh, difficult and, these are to see. And you don't like doing favors or having favors done for you. Because it make it puts mm -hmm. ownership in different places. Yes, you and so be this clear is clear about yeah what's being done for for what. Correct. So I, I I know that this might be very heady and difficult to understand. Yeah, but I'll is. just I'll just share. I did a breath work, and what I felt my whole life I've had cold hands and cold feet. I have poor circulation always, and in this breath work, what I felt was I was going through one of these situations, and it felt like I was energetically trying to like reach my hand out to take ownership of the of this aspect of the business, right? Like, Hey, you, you, you can't post that, you know? And I was like stepping into someone else's space. Oh. And what I felt through the breathwork was realizing that like, Oh no, my space extends to the tips of my fingers. My space extends in my body. The, my felt sensation of my body extends the tips of my toes. So what occurred was I felt my, the tips of my fingers in a way that I don't normally have consciousness of the tips of my fingers. Mm. I felt the coldness in my feet in a way that I'm normally totally unaware of because I don't have, I don't put awareness in my feet. My outer extremities have not really totally felt like mine. And I think, you know, I can point back to childhood abuse or things like this that, that occurred where some aspect of my physical body did not feel like it was mine, where saying no felt like it wasn't my choice. 
because that because my body didn't even totally belong to me. The extremities of my body, like only this part of my body belongs to me, but the outside belongs to other people. And in going through the breath work, feeling through the tips of my fingers, I watched my feeling about this just get so obvious. And I was things that people had told me for years, like, dude, you own the thing, <laughs> like landed in a way that they hadn't landed before. And so what I wanted to say is that one, I'm going to try to codify this so that it can be used and not just thought about as a result of everything that I just said. But I think that people pleasing runs some aspect of just about everybody's life. That's number one. Number two, I think that people cannot find it because it's not obvious to them that they're unable to say no or are afraid to say no. What they feel and could, might be able to identify is not knowing how to handle a particular relationship or just a bit of uh, frustration or stress around something. But it's not obvious to them that there's a no because it doesn't even feel like theirs that they can say no to. Yes. I think this is a early also self-improvement advice, which is not getting at the emotional part of it, but there's like an accountability and an mm -hmm. ownership part that people really gravitate towards, but it's not a felt sense. Mm -hmm. They start taking accountability for their actions or ownership of the thing without it, the emotional connection of why mm -hmm. or the emotional connection to um, what you're describing is like, I have an energy field. I have attached that energy field to a project mm -hmm. that I worked on and that energy field continues to be in my ownership. Mm -hmm. And like, if the things go bad, that's my fault. And so like, um, people just be like, well, you got to take accountability for that. Um, and yeah, I feel that could be really useful to, to add in the emotional part yeah. along with the logical, take accountability for mm -hmm. your actions. Sure. And so to reiterate what you're saying is that what I experience is that the way that I relate, let's just start to my own physical body, mm -hmm. which is, do I feel total ownership of all of this and not just think that I own my body? Cause if you ask me, I was like, yeah, nobody owns my feet. Nobody owns my fingers, but like, do you feel like it's yours because I can't feel your fingertips mm -hmm. and but I couldn't feel mine earlier <laughs> as well and I was wow. unaware of it I was like oh those are fingertips and I felt my hands heat up as I did that I was like oh this is warm hands I still feel my toes very cold um going through that piece as the foundation and working on it has positive effects through a lot of social interactions that might result in people pleasing and so you can address people pleasing as did you say no to them did you do this or that but i actually think there's a much more foundational piece that i'm discovering which is do you have blocks in your conscious awareness of everything that is actually yours inside of your body can you feel all parts of your skin easily and effortlessly can you feel your insides easily and effortlessly and if there are blocks to certain areas it is very likely that that creates a misskewed understanding of what is yours and not yours in the world. And then I think that can cut both ways. Yeah, yeah. Because I think you can go, oh, that's not mine. But you can also, oh, that's mine. And you could be claiming shit exactly. that isn't is, yeah. yours. And these two energies work together. The type of energy that won't claim what is theirs and the energy that claims beyond what is theirs, they, for, they, they become very good partners and things don't work very well, right? So I... I was just going through that. I thought it was interesting. And I think the broader thing that I'm going to work on is that when you get to this, you can call it emotional mastery, you can call it internal discovery stuff. People are not aware of the problem that they have. It's deeply unconscious. And so people don't think, most people don't go, I have an issue with people pleasing. 
right? That's they, why, I, that's literally what I was actually getting at. So I appreciate that. I was like, they're mm-hmm. going to identify, the marketer came up to me and was like, they're going to identify with accountability and an ownership trouble, yes. not people pleasing. Yes. At least so, the people I know. So the thing that I have been good at in the past that I need to work on is talking about the thing that people want more, which is confidence or stage presence or something related to this. I'll have to figure what it is and ultimately delivering. Do you have full ownership over your full self? Do you have a felt sense of ownership over your body first, secondarily over your domain, then over your abstract things like projects and a healthy sense of ownership that entitles you to say no, and this is another thing, without the other person feeling good or understanding. Because the thing about no with your body is somebody touches you. You don't have to go, no, because that's a sore part of my body and you're squeezing it and I, and they don't, you don't need to do that. You get to say no without them liking it or understanding it. Now, you might choose to say, ow, actually, that's a tender part of my body, but you don't have to. What I implicitly felt in all of these things when I would have these partnerships was that if I needed to explain my no, once somebody put in a a certain amount of effort, that activated this thing in me that they need to understand why it's a no. And I need to be very, very clear. And if they don't understand or it upsets them that I say no, we don't do the no here because it's not mine in the same way that my body is. But actually, it is mine in the same way my body is, which is I haven't claimed it fully. Are you, is that making sense? Yeah, I'm just in my own world though. Okay. <laughs> I'm thinking about, I'm, I'm relating it to my story uh, with the dating and I'm realizing how much of the time I spent disconnected from me. Mm-hmm. And then I made decisions from that disconnection point. And I, if mm-hmm. you've asked me, what do you want? It would have been something that just could have aligned the direction of what mm-hmm. I truly wanted, but also was disconnected. Yeah. Um, and I'll take the food and, uh, you know, on a date for an option. And mm-hmm. it became obvious now thinking back of how lifted out of my body, the, how, how I wasn't inhibiting every inhibiting piece of it. me all the way to the fingertips of saying, this is what I want. And those root feelings, I think this is important, often come without explanation in their first wave. The wave of, I don't want this person to touch me, doesn't go, I don't want this person to touch me because they haven't showered, but if they showered, then I would like them to touch me. It could feel like, I don't want you to touch me. Yeah. And sometimes there is no reason beyond, I just don't want it. Mm-hmm. And when people don't like that, don't appreciate it, react poorly, feel upset, you know, the feeling that other people have, that I think we could all do better is to recognize that when someone says no regarding, let's start easy, what is theirs, their body, it is not an attack on you, though it may feel that way. And I think that this is another thing that people struggle with is when they're rejected, rejection can feel not like a boundary that's a fence. It can feel like a boundary that has spikes on it that is saying that you're a bad person. I don't want to kiss you or touch you or work with you because you're insufficient in some way. And not because, no, this is just the edge of my property and you don't cross the edge of my property. (laughs) Right? And so I think on both sides, no is a very fraught issue where we make it much harder to say and much harder to hear than it needs to be because we carry all of this crap from our childhood. And I think that a healthier relationship, both with hearing no and saying no and what no actually means, I think a thing that both parties often carry, let's just take dating as an example, is if if I say no to you, what I think I'm saying to you is that you're unattractive. And what you think 
that you're hearing back from me is that you are unattractive. And what I am saying is it's just not right for me. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I'm not moving into your territory, taking any other suitors off the table. I'm not telling you what kind of life to live. It's just a no for me, my body and my life. Yeah. But with the other, but we both sort of collude to believe that it is so much more than that, that it is a, you are unlovable. And I, how could I possibly deliver that message to you? And how, that what a hard message for someone to receive without getting upset. And so there's this, what informs this people pleasing is a really unclear lack of ownership on both sides, which is, you know, it's just not rude to say, don't cut my grass. That's my grass, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. We, it's easier when you think of property in that way. Or if somebody says, hey, do you mind if I come over and play with my kids in your yard? And you can go, that's okay with me. I'm fine with it. The other neighbor asks and you go, that's not okay with me. Why? I don't fucking know why. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't want it. And to have that not mean as much and to have the explanation be a secondary piece of it that can come in in healthy relationships that you want to have because the, the last piece is that if you are a people pleaser or better said, in the aspects of your life in which you are a people pleaser, you will tend to attract people that require explanations for your nose. So let's say that you're a girl and you're on a dating app. If you're a people-pleasing type, you will attract men that need to understand why the no, right? If just, you know, it's not right for me tonight. Oh, it's because, you know, they're, they're going to, they might get upset. They might say something energetically. They might pull away. Now there are other men that will go, okay. And probably what a lot of women feel in that moment is, oh, my no turned to... <laughs> You know, my no, my no is not nearly as hard as it was. It was a no in this moment, but it might be a yes in 10 minutes or yeah. a yes on the second date. I, I, dude, that's making me, remind me of a dream I had recently where I was unable to convince the person of a no. Mm -hmm. Literally this last night, I had a dream that I was in the Airbnb backyard with you and I was sleeping and an entire group of children from a, <laughs> um, like a uh, summer camp rolled in with a bunch of counselors into our backyard because we had a pool. <laughs> and like, for some reason I'm tired and then they're rolling in. I'm like, what's going on? And they're like, well, we come here uh, every other weekend and they started explaining why they're here. And I couldn't tell them. I was like, no, I couldn't, yeah. they wouldn't accept no. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, you can't come here because, because it was an Airbnb. I wasn't actually a tenant. Mm -hmm. I had all these reasons why it wasn't okay. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, I'm going to call the cops. And they're yeah. like, well, let's not call the cops. They're, the cops were going to come and kick them out. And then I woke up. So I didn't get actually to a no, but it was just a felt sense of like, there was ownership of this space. It wasn't allowed that the camp, the, yeah. you're going to tell the kids, you want to tell the kids that are enjoying a good, having a good time mm -hmm. in the pool that they can't have a good time in the pool when they're used to this once every week. Mm -hmm. It was like, the other tenants let you do it. And it's like, oh, geez, I, uh, I really struggled mm -hmm. with uh, no. Mm -hmm. And then I got to, the police can do this. So the this police is, will be the arbiter. This is, I think, we fortunately have built a society that works out disputes about ownership. Yep. But that needs to be the higher, like that needs to be built on the foundation of a felt sense, a healthy felt sense of ownership that is neither beyond what is mine nor less than what is mine. And I think that starts in the body. But what I have done and what your dream is telling you is that when you can't feel the body, what you will fall back on is what will the police enforce? What does morality say is right? And what can I get everyone to agree to? Mm -hmm. And those are healthy second and third and fourth steps to take when there's a dispute about ownership. But if you don't have the foundation of a healthy, not too much, not too little sense of ownership that comes and it's like, well, how do you know if it's not too little? You don't know. You feel 
through healthy feeling of yeah, yeah. what is of what is yours, starting in the body, and through that process, those those pieces just shouldn't be the things that you fall back on, and they have been in my case. So I would go, well, what is the moral thing to do here, or what does the contract say? And not that those are bad second and third and fourth things to go to, but what I needed to start with was, oh, this is crappy product, and no, you can't put it on my thing. Yeah, yeah. This is mine, and and I know that you tried. And again, I have to be careful. It's not crappy product. It's not right for me. Mm -hmm. And this is the piece that I've overstepped on, which is this is where I believe that my no says something about them, and it doesn't. It just says this is not right for my channel. Yeah, it might you might go succeed elsewhere on your own channel. It's a really and another good catch thing to, set, to start explaining it's that it's that about crappy. the product and not about just having a no. I don't know what is yeses elsewhere in the world. I have no idea. It's not my business where you succeed yeah. outside of this. And in fact, I wish you the best. All that I can speak to is that this is a no for me. Mm-hmm. And then. If you're seeking clarity and help, I can start to give you things that might make that have made it a no for me. Second, you know, well, it's because I didn't hook at the beginning and this piece of advice wasn't great. As an attempt to support you, I can explain my no if I if I feel that you can receive it, but that is not a necessary condition of that. And I think that this is a critical piece for so many people and we're relying on social structures to sort out all of this instead of having a a more healthy felt sense of ownership and i i'll just say if if you don't think we are i am doing that certainly yeah and i need to work on that and i look forward to sharing more of the practical ways that this impacts me and how i'm working through it in in the future yeah and wouldn't identify as a people pleaser is it a big That's one for me? a big one because I don't. And if you look at me, you go, you're a pain in the ass. <laughs> I'm not pleased at all. Yeah, you're stubborn as shit. You're stubborn like, as hell. And I am. I am. I don't deny that. But the ways that you can call it trauma or these things often work or just generalized rules about how life works is that they apply under a certain set of circumstances. It, it's, well, when it's, and it's the broad ones that people have, and this is why you'll see such different things are they treat men and women differently based yep. on how mom and dad were. And so when the, the way they treat their friends and the way they, the criteria they have for a girlfriend might be totally different and in varying directions. Maybe they're brutal to their girlfriend and they're great with their friends or reverse. Yeah. They, they totally dote on their girlfriend, but they're a hard ass with their friends. It's not that you're one or the other. It's about identifying the areas in your life where this, this energy is stunted and blocked. And it's the, it's the energy of healthy ownership. And the last thing is if you don't healthy have a healthy ownership over your body, it can go either way and probably goes both ways in people in various points of their life. So you, you both underclaim what is yours and overclaim what isn't because you don't have a felt sense of, of yourself. So working on it, I think it's really interesting. Hopefully I didn't lose too many people in the sauce of, of it. Was it. Uh, it was saucy. Maybe we could just end it by um, <laughs> relating it to what you th- your felt sense of Elon's disconnection and his ability to then grab on, unless you have something else, grab on to macro problems as a way to dissociate. Oh, well, I don't, I think that that pattern is not necessarily about people pleasing with Elon, but what I see him doing, I don't think this is necessarily related is, as I mentioned earlier, I think that he carries stress in his system. Mm. He is, is Ah. stressed hugely universally stressed 
And then he goes, well, what's the biggest stress in the world? Humanity is going to go extinct. The light of consciousness is going to be snuffed out. I'll solve that problem. Now, it's an unsolvable problem. But even if Elon solved it, his system would not return to baseline uh. because that is not the source of his stress, though it isn't though people like to find these things outside of themselves and then solve that problem rather than going to the internal source because it's much more challenging uh, and, you know, maybe more fruitful for society at some level because we'll have rockets and self-driving cars and all that wonderful stuff. But that is what I think is going on with him. Got it. And everybody. I don't mean to single him out. I think that that's how people work is that we have, we carry ways of being, look for things that we can point to in the world and try to fix that outer thing. And if we're, uh, aware enough, we will catch that that process is repetitive, 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 repetitive. It doesn't really work. And at some point, turn inward to where I think the things move much, where things can change, actually. And then you can still go out and affect the world, but it'll come from a less diluted place. Yeah. Cool. So wind down. That's it. Appreciate you guys. Hope that you enjoy that. If you want to hop over to Patreon, we answer some questions about what we learned this week in business. And yeah. Hope we uh, hope you guys do that. It helps support the podcast and appreciate you either way. Take care. Peace. Peace. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.